I felt as if I was morphing when I was around different people to become what I thought that they wanted me to be, if that makes sense. My personality would change the way that my interests, my values even, the conversations that I would engage in would change dramatically from one person to the next. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hope to Recharge a Podcast. This month, we are breaking the stigma on borderline personality disorder. This has been something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. The more I am recording and the more I'm listening to stories, the more I'm communicating with people that are reaching out through the podcast, the more I realize that there is a tremendous amount of stigma, unnecessary stigma on borderline personality disorder and I decided to deep dive into this topic and break the stigma, bring more awareness, bring more conversation about this taboo subject. Today I have with me someone that transformed her life from the depths of hell to recovery from being homeless numerous amount of times in the psych ward, suicide attempts, and she inspired so many people around the globe, Debbie DeMarco Bennett. She's the founder of DBT Path. She helps people recover and walk through borderline personality disorder. She shares her journey. She has online DBT classes. She's going to share with us her story and what helped her understand borderline and how she reached recovery and what does recovery mean with borderline personality disorder. Powerful conversation, very long. You might have to listen to this a few times or break it up into a few listens. That's okay. If you know anyone that's struggling, please send this to them. You might help them feel belonging. You might give them hope. Borderline personality disorder needs a lot of love and hope because there is so much shame around this topic and so much stigma and very little awareness. Thanks to Marsha Linehan for creating DBT. She is helping thousands and thousands of people walk through their shame, through their struggle, and walking to the path of healing and thriving. Enjoy this conversation. I had actually been in a hospitalization many years earlier where they had put on my discharge paperwork, rule out borderline personality disorder. And I was so scared by that, that I never followed up in that town that I lived in. I didn't go back to another therapist. I didn't do anything. And years went on with 
suffering and not really knowing what was going on for myself and just a lot of collateral damage in relationships and trying to get on a positive trajectory with a career path in school. It was just, my life was a mess <laughs> for the most part. I would have six months of stability sometimes. That was like my record of where I could keep a job, I could keep a relationship, and then things would inevitably fall apart. It never really went beyond six months. That was like a, a repeated pattern that eventually shook me to my core because I had a friend and a partner at the time who both said, if you don't figure out what's going on with you and get help, we're gone. And I don't know if they really meant it, but I was really scared because these were two people that in my life, my best friend and my partner at that time that I just couldn't lose. I had a fear of abandonment that was just so intense that I went to extensive lengths to prevent people from leaving me. And that when that was said to me in that way, I was actually in an emergency room talking about feeling suicidal dehydrated because I had become so dysregulated from my nerves, from getting so emotionally upset that I was vomiting and I just couldn't keep anything down. I ended up in the emergency room for IVs and ended up talking to the staff about what was really going on. I wasn't having a stomach bug. This was something that happened all the time when my emotions got out of control because my nervous system was just totally hijacked by my emotions. And it got to the point of being sick at that level. And when my friend and my partner at the time came to visit me in the ER, this is where that conversation took place. I told the staff and they arranged for me to talk with the on-call psychiatrist. And that's when I was referred to an intensive outpatient hospitalization, which is like being inpatient in the hospital, but you get to go home at night. So I've experienced both, but this is a little less restrictive. And it was there during that process. It happened to be at the same facility that my mental health team, meaning my therapist and my psychiatrist also worked at. They were all kept in the loop. This was at a Kaiser Permanente facility. I got to see my usual psychiatrist while I was in the program. I got to see my usual therapist. And then I had the group therapies and the DBT that they offered, dialectical behavior therapy, skills groups that they offered within that hospitalization program. And the thing that actually tipped my psychiatrist who had been seeing me for years, because I know we're going to get into shame and there, there are so many things that can lead to shame. For me, it wasn't self-harm, which is like a really classic symptom of BPD for a lot of people. And it's a symptom that can lead to shame. I was overlooked for this by my team. But once I got into this intensive outpatient, I said, look, I'm laying all my cards on the table because I'm about to lose everything. I'm tired of losing everything. I need something to work because I don't know what to do anymore. And I told my psychiatrist while I was in the program that I felt as if I was morphing when I was around different people to become what I thought that they wanted me to be, if that makes sense. My personality would change my, the way that my interests, my values, even the conversations that I would engage in would change dramatically from one person to the next. Just as an example, like with one person who is a Republican, I would be like this diehard Republican and be like believing everything and, and agreeing with everything. And then I could be with someone else like in the next 
two hours, who's a Democrat, and I'm totally sympathetic to that. Now that's what I believe. I'm very clear now on where I stand on all of those things. But at that time, I'm just that just to illustrate, especially in today's world where this is such a big topic that, and how intense it can be, depending on what your viewpoints are. But just to illustrate how dramatic it was. And it could be religious beliefs. It was just things that are typically core values for people would shift for me. And I expressed this to her and I said to her, I realized I was thinking about the fact that what if I was in a room with all of these people at the same time? Like, What a good question. <laughs> it occurred to me. What a real, oh, wow. It was like, what if they threw me a birthday party? Like, how would I act? And the thought terrified me. I was like, I would, ex- I, I felt like I would explode because I didn't know how would I act? You know what I mean? Because how would I, it was just such a complex scary moment for me. And that's when that opened up the door to my psychiatrist to say, okay, this sounds like identity disturbance. And then we started looking together at the symptoms or the criteria for BPD and realized I basically had all of them. That was the first time you did a check, a real BPD diagnosis checklist that you went through the nine traits and say, wait, I have most of them. Yes, most or all of them is what I remember at the very beginning. And talk about shame and how this is perceived even within the clinical community. My psychiatrist says, look, I'm not going to put this down as a diagnosis on your chart because she knew I went to the emergency room all the time and I was in crisis all the time. She goes, a lot of doctors and a lot of therapists and even psychiatrists really don't understand this. And you might be treated poorly. And I was just like, that scared me. Another identity hiding, like, oh no, now I have to hide my things that are my struggle. Like, how, and I'm supposed to trust the community to help me? Yes, exactly. And she said, there's not a lot of empathy or sympathy because there isn't really a true understanding of what's going on for people with this disorder. I'm going to put down that you have a history of extreme trauma or history of, I forget what word she is, but it's like something about like intense ongoing trauma. And that's what's on my chart to this day. It's still on there for, with Kaiser. They leave it on there forever unless they really think. But I think that actually helped me, Matana, because when I would go to the emergency room after she put that on, I did actually note, not that I ever said I had BPD or thought I did when I was in the emergency room, but I noticed with that on there, I got a lot more compassion. Like people were more understanding. They took more time with me. They were kinder. They were gentler. Imagine though what they may have been like, because I hear horror stories from my students and from other people that I have been in treatment with about them saying to someone in the emergency room, look, I have borderline personality disorder, and them just being dismissed, treated poorly, treated roughly, kicked out of the emergency room, treated disrespectfully. I feel like there's giving no hope. Like we're not going to treat you because you're going to be like this for the rest of your life. So why should we even bother giving you the time, the energy, or we can't fix it. So goodbye. Let next. Yes. And that was how borderline personality disorder was perceived up until recently, actually. I don't remember who said it. It might have been Dr. Marshall Linehan who created dialectical behavior therapy, but there was, I remember a quote being out there early in my recovery where it was like, BPD is considered or used to be considered a psychiatric death sentence. Right. She does say that, Marsha. 
Yes. Okay. And that was really reflective of what was true in the medical community. I think it's beginning to change, but I think we have so much work to do and so much further to go. I honestly, I want to put some responsibility back on the professionals to own, especially the therapists and psychiatrists who make assumptions or make negative videos about people with this disorder that education is needed. I will say that education is needed. And these are hurting people. Many, if not most of the people that would develop borderline personality disorder have been through hell and back, have been through traumas that you would not believe unspeakable. Not everyone. There's other reasons why people could go on to develop BPD, but I would say the majority of people I interact with have been through horror stories and they were never taught how to regulate their emotions and they were never taught how to handle the different things that come up within them. How are they supposed to know unless someone is willing to meet them where they're at, even if they're being nasty, if they're having trouble with lying, if they're cutting themselves, whatever it might be that they're doing that's off-putting to the practitioner or scary to them or concerning to them, somebody has to meet this person right where they're at and, and love them and care for them and show them respect and have that empathy and that space to listen and to begin to help them. And that's where the hope comes in is when people are ready to listen and actually be that support. What was your hope at the moment when you discovered that you're probably struggling with borderline personality disorder? Where was your hope? Was your psychiatrist the hope? DBT treatment that you were taking? What shifted? While I was in the hospitalization program, I was also starting to do my own research on the side, being my own Dr. Debbie, (laughs) to bring that into my appointment with my psychiatrist and just doing my own research. I was pretty suspicious that I had BPD going into that conversation, just based on what I had been reading and everything resonating. And I went in there with the expectation that it was very possible that I was going to walk out the door hearing that I had that diagnosis, but also thinking, oh, maybe they'll say it's just trauma, it's PTSD. But which there is a lot of overlap with PTSD, but there are some very distinct things that are more unique to BPD. Like the fear of abandonment usually isn't classically considered a PTSD thing. It's more, but it can be. But when she told me that's what I had, and we started talking about, I'm not going to put this on your chart. Of course, that was anxiety provoking because I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be tough. But when she said there's a treatment specifically for this. Now I'm in, at the time I'm in the IOP intensive outpatient and they're teaching DBT skills, but I don't know that that's what it's called. Cause I'd never heard of it before. We're already doing some DBT skills in that setting. And, but then she tells me there's a treatment that is specifically created for people that have borderline personality disorder. And it's helping a lot of other people too, with anxiety or eating disorders or PTSD, but this is who it was created for. And we have the group here at Kaiser. I'm going to refer you and you can get started. That's when my hope, that's when my eyes lit up. That's when my heart opened. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, not only do I know what I have, there's a name for it. Somebody else is sitting with me and acknowledging that as well. But there's something specifically to help me because I need that because nothing else has worked. Everything has been a temporary patch or a band-aid, just a temporary fix. I needed something that would work. And I was excited and very motivated to get started knowing that this was created for someone like me. (laughs) And it was. How old were you at that time? Let's see. That was 2010. So that was what, 11 years ago? I was 32. 
And how long beforehand were you struggling with this in and out of hospitalization and medication, psychiatry? When did you notice, wait, I'm not the average kid in the class. I'm struggling. What age was that? I'll take you through the journey because they say you can't really be diagnosed with BPD until you're 18, until you're actually an adult because all the brain development and social things and, and still your brain's not actually developed until your mid-20s. But anyway. I started going in and out of psychiatric hospitalizations at age 18. However, if we rewind the clock back to around 12, 13 is when I started to realize that something was off. While you can't be diagnosed with BPD at that age, you can sense that something is off. <laughs> and I definitely did. I began, I had trouble with telling tall tales. And I look back in retrospect with compassion for that child that I learned that I had to exaggerate in order for adults to take me seriously. That started me out on this journey of telling stories and making things sound bigger than they were. And I had a lot of guilt and shame about that, but I also felt like that literally was the only way to get the attention of the people that were supposed to care for me. I couldn't just say I had a stomach ache. I had to say, I feel like I'm dying and I need to go to the hospital. It was just like really extreme and dramatic. And I did have a hospitalization at around that age for feeling suicidal. There was a lot going on in my life, major abandonment issues with both parents and living with my grandmother at the time. Wow. Real trauma. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's it, this. I was just telling my students yesterday, Montana, that it's so weird. And I, I feel like there's a purpose that I went through all this trauma in this lifetime, because when I engage with people who have been through trauma... I want to say, and I'm not bragging about this, but I want to say seven out of 10 times, whatever they've been through, I've actually been through it too. That's how traumatic it was in my early childhood and into my teen years and even into early adulthood. There's been a, definitely a lot of trauma. Right after, shortly after that hospitalization at around age 13, I went into the foster care system. And you want to talk about fear of abandonment when you, the way you get tossed around in that system with people not wanting you because you're not a baby and it was not good. Oh, it's brutal. Yes. And I ran away a lot. I figured out that the way to get my control and not feel rejected was to run away from the homes that I was placed in. Not kidding. I probably ran away from at least like 22 foster homes in like a two or three year period. Wasn't there recently a movie or old movie about somebody that ran away from 30 homes until someone's... Really? I'm trying to remember where either it was a documentary or a movie or a book. I must remember where I... And maybe, oh, maybe it was a TED Talk. And she was talking about forgiveness afterwards, that forgiving herself for not trusting and for all those people that she ran away from in order to gain control because she's no one really. Oh, it was about belonging and forgiveness and to be able to really trust again and to feel a belonging when she never felt. And she the only control she had was kept on running away on her choice. I just got to chill. I need to see that. We could follow up after this. <laughs> so, okay. Yes. But I'm like, wait, did Debbie write that script? <laughs> I lived that script, <laughs> at least that part of it. Yeah. And I've actually gone on Facebook. I haven't actually reached out, but there are some foster parents names and details that I've remembered that I've considered reaching out and apologizing because I behaved poorly. I stole from them. I ran away. I caused all kinds of problems. It was acting out. It was wanting to be in control so that I could decide that I was leaving and not them. However, it got to the point when I was 15 that social services told me if you 
get kicked out of one more foster home or you run away from one more foster home, we're going to have to put you in a group home. And that scared the crap out of me because I had only heard really scary stories about group homes and things that happen in them. And so there's no way I wanted to go there. But I did act up to the point at my final foster home, the one that I still remember the details and may someday reach out to. And I was placed in group homes at the age of 15. My first group home was an all girls group home. There were 18 of us. And I'm still in touch with many of them and many of the staff members on Facebook now. We've become friends. I consider many of those staff members to have been my house mothers because they had such a profound impact on my life and were there for me and finally helped me begin to stabilize and feel safe. It was so weird that it took being in that setting. I loved it. I loved the structure. We have a schedule every day from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. We had point cards where we were evaluated on things like hygiene and helping with chores and communication, <laughs> like all this stuff I never got. When I was 17 or just turning 17, I got transferred to, or I graduated, I should say, to an independent living group home, which was smaller and co-ed. And I got a job at the mall. I got to go back to public high school part-time and again, felt really safe and supported. And for the first time in my life, not so crazy. I wasn't, you know, falling apart all the time like I was when I was younger. Can I ask you a question? Yes. I, I, I want to hear the rest. I just wondering at that point, you're 18, you're getting a job. Do you f have dreams for your life? Were you able to put the past behind and say, you know what? I'm 18 and I'm an adult. I'm going to create the best life for myself. Did you have that vision? I did. And I thought that was going to look like moving to California and going to college and maybe becoming a doctor because I was really interested in human biology. And that was my favorite subject actually in high school. But unfortunately, as time was beginning to tick out of time, when it was approaching my 18th birthday, I thought I was going to be phased out and asked to leave. There hadn't been a conversation that had taken place with me personally. I later learned and I have so much regret, Montana, that I still have dreams about this. I still have dreams about going back and fixing this. Like last week, I'm not kidding, that I found out that had I not done what I did to sabotage myself right near my 18th birthday, I could have stayed until I was 21. I didn't know that. And I thought they're kicking me out in a few weeks. I went into this mode of, I hate this place. I Like you did all the time, self-destructions. Exactly. I had made so much progress, done so much, had my whole future in front of me. And then I ran away from the group home all the way. This was good. This group home was just outside of Boston. I hopped on a Greyhound bus in the middle of the night and went to Seattle on an impulse. <laughs> this is how crazy. Wait, they didn't look for you. They didn't say, wait, let's work with you. Let's find out where Debbie went. What happened to her? They did. But when they found out that I had gone all the way to Seattle and my birthday was coming up to be 18, the director of the program who didn't work intimately with us, like our case managers did and other staff members, I didn't really have a relationship with him, said, no, she's too much of a risk. And what's the word for it? Liability. She's 18. She can get all the way to Seattle. She can go live on her own. Do you think it was like a consequence that they wanted to teach you in life? Because a lot of DBT is about learning consequences. I think so. And I also think it was about they had 
given me chances. There were other little things I had done along the way that could have gotten me kicked out of the program. And they always worked with me. And I think this was just too big. I had also recruited another resident to go with me. So you have regret. But the truth is, if you wouldn't go through all that, you wouldn't go through the rock bottom to heal. And to do what you're doing now, which is, I know you don't regret it. You're upset that they didn't tell you what you really could do. Yes. And and honestly, I do regret it. But like you're saying, even when I do have those dreams, even where when I sit and I reminisce and I think about if they had only told me, like, how would my life be different today? It does bring me to that point that if I hadn't gone through everything I had gone through exactly the way I had gone through it, my story would be different. And I also wouldn't be in a position to help people the way I'm able to now and to be doing the work that I'm doing. And because this feels like such a soul fit, what I'm doing, like what I'm supposed to be doing on the planet, at least at this phase in my life, I don't regret it. I understand that it all happened for a purpose. I do wonder what may have been. And I do sometimes mourn for my 18 year old who could have had a different path and maybe a lot less suffering. But I really feel like this is just supposed to be my journey the pain included. Yeah. We often say in in mental illness that we don't wish it on our biggest enemies and we wish we didn't have to go through it. But when we are past it and we went through it, as Marcia says, you have to walk through misery to get out of hell. So when we're out of hell, we can look back and say, you know what? The place that we're in now was definitely worth the hell, even though we don't want to go through it again. And it's so complex because on one hand, we're like, oh, thank God we went through it. But then the other hand, don't, no, but don't ever try that trick on me again. Yes, exactly. Like, I've been through enough. Okay, thank you. I have learned, I have learned. So there's such a tug of war of self-forgiveness, other forgiveness, moving forward, understanding, clarity, gaining tools, and it's all together. And sometimes it's just a big cocktail of unknown and these different emotions that are struggling inside us with gratitude, with a lot of gratitude to how much we accomplished and how far we came. That was just so beautifully summarized. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. So it's okay to be confused and it's okay to have dreams. And uh, the dreams are saying, I think I'm a big dreamer. Since I'm a little girl, I used to, I dream and my dreams come true. And people used to say, don't dream about me unless I'm winning the lottery or marrying the love of my life or having a baby for those that didn't have children, want to have children. And I used to be afraid to tell my scary dreams because they would come true. But I always believed that there was a connection to a part of us that needs to let either me heal, somebody else heal, like something that is unclosed by us that we either need to address or give it some time, some space. Maybe we need some self-forgiveness. Maybe we need some passion. Maybe we need some clarity, but something in subconscious is saying, come back to me. I, it's not resolved yet. Yeah. I feel like that too. Like it's the realm of the subconscious coming into visibility for us. And there's always a message. And sometimes we go, miles into recovery, but then we have to go, we're suddenly pulled back with the wave and we're in the middle of the ocean again. And, but what we know is we know how to swim. We know how to swim back to shore. And that's what tools are and stability and going through it and hope. And that's what I want to go into our next conversation is, so I'm going to skip from your 18 you're going through these sabotaging moments. And you said every six months, you're like in a bad relationship, sabotaging a pattern of instability. So in and out of hospitals, no clarity. The loved ones around you are like, okay, Debbie, you got to figure this out enough. And you get to that clarity and you're willing to accept the fact that it 
probably is borderline personality disorder and to deep dive into DBT. Now, before we touch on to DBT, I want to give the audience, not for audience that are already diagnosed, but for audience that are wondering, is this what I have? Because I'm hearing this from a lot of people, parents especially of people or partners. Is this what my partner has? Maybe this is it. But there is so much fear and shame of even looking into it that it's not addressed. Can you just run down with us a few of the nine traits that if you have a few of them, you definitely should get checked out? Sure. I don't have them in front of me, but just recalling from memory from some of the ones that I've had or that people I know have had or currently have. One of them that's a hallmark is this fear of abandonment, and they call it real or imagined. Even if you don't have any evidence that someone may be abandoning you, this could be like a parent. This could be, oftentimes it's a romantic partner. It could be a friend. It could be anybody, but you have this fear that maybe you make one mistake and now they're going to leave. They don't want anything to do with you. They can't stand you. Like it's very black or white, which is another sign oftentimes that we think in black and white, all or nothing terms in extreme. It's either I'm perfect and this person loves me. I made one mistake and now I'm not unlovable and they're leaving. The fear of abandonment, the black or white thinking. I mentioned self-harm. Self-harm is very common, whether it's cutting or some other form of self-harm. I have come to also feel that self-sabotaging is self-harm. It's not classically, it's not, you know, like a physical doing something to your body. But for me, I considered that self-harm to myself as I began to learn about this disorder and the treatment, just doing things that would derail my life, just to have that sense of being in control was harming myself. And eating disorders are common as well, or how do they describe it? Disordered eating, like for me, it was eating disorder, not otherwise specified. NOE, I think is what was on my chart. It's, it can be like this strange relationship with food. What else? There are also, okay, identity disturbance. One of the biggest ones for me, not really having a solid sense of who you are apart from other people that's consistent across relationships and settings. That's a really big one. And the, the important suicidal thought ideation. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> that is one of the, and it's also threats. Retrospectively, this might bring some peace of mind to parents who might be dealing with trying to cope with children that are, or even adult children that are going through this or people that are suffering from it themselves, just some food for thought. Now, while I would re- really caution that we should always take any talk of suicide or self-harm very seriously and not dismiss it or or think it's just for attention or anything like that. I'm saying retrospectively what I found for myself and what some people may be relating to who are listening, who do threaten to hurt or commit suicide or whatever the languages that they use, that when I said those types of things, the truth was I really, at the core of my being, didn't actually want to die. And I hope I didn't offend anyone by saying committing suicide. I know that's a phrase that some people find. Die by suicide, yeah. Yeah, die by suicide. Excuse me for that. I'm old school and that's what I grew up, you know, hearing and the language that I've used, but I want to be respectful for those that don't use that language. And I'm trying to shift from it as well. It's automatic. But when I would express that I wanted to kill myself or that I wanted to die, I didn't want to live anymore. 
looking back, that was not actually what was going on for me. What was going on for me was that the emotional intensity and pain and distress that I was experiencing internally was so big that, and I didn't know how to manage it. And I didn't know how to ask for help around it, but that was the only thing, the only way I could express it. Like I just couldn't live with how I was feeling anymore is what it really was. And I needed help. I didn't actually want to die. Some people, when they're expressing this, do. That's why I'm saying, please continue to take it seriously. But I think that for a lot of us, for a lot of people who may be struggling, may not be diagnosed yet, who have been expressing this, that might resonate. They might say, look, Actually, that's, that is what it is. I don't want to die, but I feel like that's the only thing I can say for people to understand that I don't want to live like this. I don't want to feel like this and I need something to change. I need some help. Whether someone is feeling that way and has intention or they feel that way, but the intention is to get help and not really wanting to die, I think that can often be a really big red flag in terms of this could be BPD, but wanted to put that out there. There's this scan through that professionals do to see how often it happens, how many of these traits do you identify with, and then you get a diagnosis. What happens? What happens when one gets the diagnosis in their mind and then their fear and their shame and then to acceptance? What is that transformation and what are we lacking in the world of mental health to really help people overcome it because the bottom line is you can recover from it. You speak about often that you're in recovery from it. There is a way to not be borderline personality disorder, just have the traits or tendencies. Yes, this is something I love to talk about because I've put it this way before that it's amazing that such a serious and potentially serious psychiatric diagnosis can go into remission, that you can actually get your control back, that you can actually learn to cope with and manage your emotions. You can learn to thrive as an emotionally sensitive person who has intense emotions, but you approach it differently when you experience them so that it doesn't turn into self-destruction or problems in relationships or work or anything across the spectrum of life. And I realize everyone's journey is going to look differently. And a big part of it is going to be, what does their support system look like? Because I was very fortunate that I live in the United States. I had health insurance at the time that I already was in ongoing treatment. I had a lot of things going my way. I had a stable partner, a stable place to live. I had at least one close friend. I had a lot of things going in my favor. Prior to that, I may not have been as successful. I may have needed to get a few of those eggs in a row before I would have been in a place where I could benefit from the work. I think I don't want to discourage anyone when I say that either. If you don't have an extensive support system where things are feeling unstable, that can also be a really great place to start with DBT. And that's where some of the success stories that I know have actually come from. People that have had, they couldn't even afford to see a therapist individually, but they're like, I want to learn these skills though. I want to be part of this community. I want to do this. And it's going to look different for everyone. It's not a linear process. It's not, okay, I had all pretty much all nine criteria. And now I'm completely well, like you're saying that at one point that sometimes even in recovery, we will have something happen. It'll take us back a little bit. 
and I've certainly experienced that. I've never gone back into or come out of remission or recovery, thank goodness. And it's been many years. That's a good sign. Some people do, and that's okay too. Some people do relapse and need to get a lot of extra support to get back on the path. And that's okay. For me, it's like you said, like it's like this process of swimming. And I also think of it as you can never go back to square one once you've started the work because you've already made progress. You can't go back to where you started. You now have, to, when you get the treatment that works for you, it could be dialectical behavior therapy. It might be something else that you find is a better fit. But once you do that work and you get to a place of stabilization and you get to a place of recovery, when the storms of life come up, when the crises come up, and I've certainly experienced my share since going into recovery, and they could have put me back into a relapse, but because I had those tools and I had evidence that I actually have some power over this, that that's something I didn't believe. Like when I was in the emergency room before my diagnosis, I thought everything was happening to me. And that's very understandable to think, I didn't think I had any power to choose differently in the moment to to affect the circumstances, to affect my relationships, to affect how I felt. Like I had no idea that I had any power like that. I just thought I was a victim of wherever the wind blew when my emotions took me. But in recovery, it's a different story. I have this sense of ownership and responsibility because I know better. I think it was Dr. Maya Angelou who said, when you know better, you do better. And I didn't know better. Like you were saying early on in the podcast, it's if you don't know, you can't or maybe that was before and we were chatting before we went on. We don't have to apologize for things that are, we did not within ourselves that we couldn't be accountable for at the time because we didn't know better. We can apologize if we've done damage and we have regret now that we have an understanding. But yeah, I always say you, we do the best we can with what we have right now. So we don't have to apologize for the previous self that didn't know what we know now. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And, and we can have compassion and love that part of ourselves, give that love that we weren't able to give to that part because we couldn't see that. Why is there such a stigma? If you're saying there is recovery, you can even be in remission. Like, why do we have such a stigma? And people are still afraid to say it out loud. I think it's because in large part, that when someone who has BPD shows up on the doorstep of a therapist or a psychiatrist or a hospital or a mental health clinic or wherever they're turning to in crisis, it can be really overwhelming. The behaviors that are being expressed, which this person has developed as a coping mechanism to survive, can be frightening, can be off-putting, can be no really scary for people, people threatening in graphic ways to hurt themselves, people becoming stalkerish with therapists. These are things I'm not want to say, I'm not going to say trigger warning. I'm just going to say, these are things that not everyone does and not all of them are common, but these are some behaviors that people present that are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder that are frightening for practitioners that don't have enough experience training and empathy training as well, or the willingness to hold the space for all that comes with supporting someone who's going through this. You have to have a really big heart. You have to be willing to deal with what a therapist may call things like manipulation 
again, we don't like to use that word, especially in DBT skills, because it implies that the person is maliciously doing something to hurt you. But the truth is a lot of these behaviors that may show up are because this is how this person who was not taught in a healthy way how to deal with their emotions has learned to get their needs met. It may be with aggression. It may be with lying. It may be with threatening. It may be with having an emotional outburst in public that embarrasses you. It could be all of these different things that at first sight, if someone is not understanding the deeper core of the of where this kind of behavior would come from and what this person is really needing is to be seen, to be heard, to be loved if that feels appropriate in the situation or cared for and given a chance and taught if they're receptive and willing how to do it differently. That's the big thing. I would say the stigma still exists because we can show up in ways that are frightening for people. And I think that one of the things that I've discussed before with my students is that letting someone know when you're having, when rage comes on or when any of these particular behaviors come on, letting someone know you're scared, like what is really going on, showing some vulnerability as best as you can. That's a very scary thing to do when you've learned to trust that no one is going to help you, but it can be incredibly effective in those situations where you're sensing that you might be treated poorly or not understood or received because of the behaviors that you're having, like to actually just have a conversation with the person and let them know what's going on. But that can be really hard and take time too. And so support is essential. And this is going to go to the, my next question. I have a lot of parents reaching out, as I said before, that they're before 18 and you can't diagnose borderline before 18, but there's traits and what do we do until 18 in order to not wait until 18 to get the diagnosis and then start dealing with it? Let's say somebody's 14, 12, 15. What do we do in these years to start helping them before we have a diagnosis? We've mentioned here and there a little bit dialectical behavior therapy or DBT skills, which are essentially emotional coping skills that span over a few different areas of life and including relationships and handling when our emotions are dysregulated or when we're in distress and elements of mindfulness and so on. And there's been more and more research coming out and more and more discussion about using these skills with children, parents or teachers or caretakers demonstrating and practicing DBT skills with appropriateness for the cognitive level of the child. The application of the skill is going to be different versus using it with an adult based on what the child is going through and what they're perceiving and coming from the psyche of (laughs) their minds. It can be really helpful to find a therapist who works with children who is familiar with DBT skills because it just can be so helpful. I believe there have been some books even recently that have come out specifically on DBT with adolescents, DBT with teens, DBT with children. I feel like it needs to be taught like math. If math is in school, if science is in school, DBT should be in school. Every school. I quite frankly feel so like, why do I get neglected? Because I don't have borderline. Why don't I get these tools to learn? Because I don't have borderline. I want these tools and they should be taught to us because they're a skill that helps anybody in life. Yes. You know what? I think about this too. Like how would my life have been different if around 13, when everything was going on, I was learning 
emotion regulation skills. And DBT was developed in the 80s, early 90s. This is relatively new, but yeah, it definitely should be available in schools. It isn't yet, obviously, but I know there are people working on advocating for that and trying to make that happen. That's a good thing. But for parents who are looking for answers now, I would definitely say contact, try to find a therapist who um, works with children who has a background in DBT um, or mindfulness. That can be really helpful if you can't find someone specifically in your area who does DBT. Mindfulness skills, which are a core component of DBT, can be very helpful to help children regulate their emotions. We recently started allowing teens into our online class. Our youngest graduate last year was 15 years old. What we do is we require that the parent or guardian attends, at least initially, to make sure that the content feels appropriate and that the child is doing well. And at some point, the parent or guardian is welcome to allow the student to continue doing things privately and checking in with them. But initially, that's what we ask. And we ask them to also um, check in and see if a therapist thinks it's appropriate for them to do a psychoeducational course. And yeah, we are population is all over the spectrum, but we are having, we're noticing more and more teens signing up, more and more parents reaching out. The other thing I would say is if the situation is really intense is to look into residential programs that may be like a couple of weeks in length to a couple of months in length where it's not, you know, what we might think of as a psychiatric hospitalization for an adult. It's more, sometimes they do like outdoor adventures or some type of, it's, there's a, it's a clinical thing for sure. There's a clinical team, there are psychiatrists, there are therapists, but it's not set up as a hospital typically. Some of them are, if they're, if that's what the child or the adolescent is needing. I know McLean 3 East at Harvard in Boston has an amazing program for teenagers. And I believe it's, I, I don't know what the cutoff age is, but I believe it goes into young adults that's in-house and residential. And there are other programs as well. But sometimes that's the answer. If things are really out of control. Yeah. If you're feeling out of control, you're very concerned about your child's safety and them getting on track to move forward with their life. If you're scared for your own safety because of behaviors that are coming up, these are things to think about maybe I should call and talk to someone to see. And because it's very intensive and they're working with someone in their 24 hours a day for that period of time that they're there, they're getting evaluated, but it's not like sitting there, okay, who's the president of the United States? Who's this? It's not like a clinical in that sense. It's more allowing the child to be the child so they can observe and work with them. That's a place to look as well. Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful. I want to go into your recovery. How many years did you practice nonstop DVT before you felt like you were in recovery and remission? About two years. Is that an average? Is that what people go through two years? Like they have to say, I'm going to devote about two years for my recovery? I have found that's pretty typical. I'm not sure that there's any research on that can validate exactly how long and also anything else we've been talking about. It can vary from person to person. I certainly was not in recovery after my first round of DBT. I was doing a lot better. I was starting to stabilize, but it was around like the two year mark where my life was really actually stable. And I was in an appointment with my psychiatrist and just telling her a bunch of things that I had been accomplishing and things that were going well. And 
I said to her, yes, and I'm not doing X, Y, Z anymore. And this isn't happening. And blah, blah, blah. She pulls out the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual for the therapists and psychiatrists. And that, for anyone who doesn't know, and we, she said, let's take a look. And we went through the criteria and I no longer met the criteria. At that time, you had to have, I believe it was like five out of the nine of the symptoms. I think I have three at that point. My memory's getting fuzzy, <laughs> but, but it was less than five. And yeah, I began from that day to be able to say, I'm in recovery. This is unbelievable. And so you no longer say, I struggle. I don't even know the terminology that people like using. Is it, I was diagnosed with borderline? What is the terminology? Well, I now say I'm in recovery or remission for borderline personality disorder and that I have BPD traits. One of my biggest things I still struggle with is black or white, all or nothing thinking. It's gotten a lot better. I have things to cue me and I've done a lot of work, but I do have to ask the people in my life sometimes to nudge me when they notice that I'm in that. I acknowledge I still have traits and I think that it could be lifelong and that's something that might require acceptance. But yes, that's how I describe where I'm at in my journey. And your students that come and they ask, okay, how long will it take me to see change? What am I looking forward to? So what do you say to them? One day at a time, each one is different. Each one is different. Just start the process. Don't look at the end. What do you tell them? Well, it, basically I do tell them, I share my personal story that you know, I'm going to be honest with you. It took me about two years because I don't want them to have unrealistic expectations that they're just going to go through the nine month class and everything's going to be rosy. For some people it is, or they feel it is or express that it is. But I also talk about support outside of, because my course is a psychoeducational skills class. And I believe it's really important to also be working with an individual therapist because there's so much that can come up for someone and will come up. Whether you're taking a DBT skills class or not, if you're taking a DBT skills class, then that's probably hopefully helping you to manage the emotions that are coming up. But I think it's so important to work with someone individually. And the other piece of that is that from my own personal example, I tried to do trauma recovery before learning DBT skills and ended up having a really hard time and getting very regulated. And I found that learning the DBT skills allowed for that next phase of healing. Cause it's not like you just learn DBT skills, go into recovery. There's still all this stuff, right? Now you're in a better place to deal with it. When you have the skills to manage your emotions, now you can go into deeper work and your healing and deal with the trauma and everything that set this off in the first place. And I think that's part of the process as well. What I want to understand for one of the things that I keep on seeing from people that I speak to and uh, come and ask for my guidance. And I always say, I don't know this world. And all I could say is read Marsha Linehan's books, read, find a DBT community, keep on going. And honestly can say that borderline personality disorder humans are the strongest humans I came across in my life. But really, like they're the work that has to be done is nonstop, but there's a depth to it. There's some kind of a depth to it. That's like a gift to their community. And but a part of me also sees that there's a fear that there's like the triggers. They, they want to know when they'll be triggered. When can they remove themselves 
when I say they, the community, the, the people that are struggling, because I don't understand it. It's hard for me to be in that mindset. So I want to understand it from a person that went through it. When can we no longer be afraid of what will happen if we're triggered, if something happened? We were speaking about it earlier to not apologize for triggers and just to say, okay, I have the skills, I'm going to deal with it versus walking on eggshells constantly in our own personal life as somebody that struggles with borderline to just say, oh, this is who I am. Not to label ourselves, oh, I'm borderline, so therefore I'm A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Do you understand what I'm saying is my question? It's not be so under the category and to allow, maybe it won't happen. And maybe we'll react differently. And maybe we can go into the situation, even though we were diagnosed with borderline. I still get triggered from time to time. Could be something on the news. It could be something that reminds me of something that happened a long time ago or whatever. There was a time in my life that early on in the journey where I tried to shield myself from as much of the world as possible that I thought would trigger me. I would avoid the news or I would avoid people that as much as I could to the extent that I could, that would be triggering. But okay. And I felt very fragile. And I think people, when they're first discovering that this is what's going on for them, this is why I like to use the term emotionally sensitive, because it has a lot less stigma. We can be sensitive creatures and (laughs) have this stuff coming up. So when we're triggered, when we are afraid that we'll be triggered and we avoid relationships, we avoid connection, we avoid conversation, we avoid talking about what we have because of our stigma and what if someone abandons us and what if we suicidal and how do we live life not under the umbrella of this is my entire identity? I think what has to happen is we have to create some evidence to the contrary and that's by doing our work. It's by learning these skills and practicing them and collecting evidence that we're safe, collecting evidence that we can cope, collecting evidence that no emotion, no mood, no urge is going to last forever, that if we can ride it out and not act on it, things are going to be okay. We have to be willing to go through the fire and actually experience some discomfort and come out the other end and see that we're alive and see that we're safe and see that everything is okay. Then we collect all of this experience for our nervous system, for our brain, for our spirit, that when something comes up, like for me in my current life, this past year has been a nightmare for most of us in a lot of ways with the pandemic and everything going on and all of the things. And for, it's not just the collective trauma of what we're dealing with in the present, but also people's individual traumas that are getting triggered by things. It might be like fear of lack because of things from the past. It could be fear of illness. It could be fear of losing someone. It's amplified because of what we're surrounded with. And I've certainly had stuff come up for myself intensely by hearing stuff on the news related to the pandemic and such. And what I've learned to do, and it's possible to get to this place. And if you had told me this 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you, but it's possible to notice to get to the point of where you notice that biological change, you notice that surge of adrenaline, you notice your stomach tightening up, you notice your muscles. Mindfulness is a big part of DBT. You you get training in all of this and you begin to notice what's happening in your body as a cue to what you're feeling. And then you notice what you're feeling and then you use your skills. You either If it's something that you can't change in the moment and you're becoming dysregulated and you don't want to make matters worse and act in an urge, there's a set of skills called distress tolerance skills where you find ways to soothe yourself through the senses or distract yourself through something that takes your mind off of what 
just happened. You could do problem solving. You might call your therapist or talk to someone who's close by, a loved one, and say, this just really scared the crap out of me. And I'm just really needing a hug. I'm needing a reassurance. Can we just talk about this and then change the subject? You know, what that would be problem solving. It could be emotion regulation. It might be something like, I'm going to go and run outside right now in the brisk, cold winter air just to change my sensation and get myself out of my head and out of my emotions and back in my body or take a hot shower or do something like that. But it gets to the point where you can notice that you've been triggered and choose to respond in a different way, not to where you're invalidating yourself. You're still saying, okay, this, th- I'm scared. And it makes sense that I'm scared right now. You might not have access to that logic in the moment when you're panicking. Maybe an hour later, you can retrospectively do that part. But you can become aware of the cues that your body's giving you, of the types of red flag thoughts that you have, of the emotional experiences that you have, and have, and now be equipped with ways to cope and respond in the moment instead of going into old reaction. And you can have compassion and gentleness for yourself if you become so overwhelmed in your nervous system that you do default back to an old pattern or an old way of coping, that you can notice that and change gears. You don't have to go fully down the track of, okay, doing XYZ behavior that you would have done in the past, even though that's what you feel like doing right now. And that's where the change happens. That's where it really begins to (laughs) solidify and you realize, okay, I'm not the same person anymore. I can handle this. (laughs) I don't like this, but I can handle it. And you're no longer living in that shame and shadow of it versus I'm stronger than my struggles and I could figure it out. And sometimes I don't, sometimes I fall, but I eventually will get the tools just like you did. And at a certain point you said, I am... I went through it and I want to gift this to others. So you started your platform, which is DBT Path. Point did you say, I am so convinced that DBT is a cure, literally a cure for borderline. And it saved my life that I'm so strong in my recovery that I want to gift it to others and train others. When were you so secure with yourself? I just want to be clear. I do feel like DBT cured me in conjunction with doing my individual therapy and also other work on trauma. But when I realized this is something that I can't keep to myself, this is something I want to shout from the rooftops. When I was diagnosed in 2010, I started a blog called healingfrombpd.com. And I didn't know anything about blogging. And honestly, it was more like a journal for myself that I was, my intention was, I remember saying, I'm going to put this out into the universe. And if even one person is as crazy as me, because that's how I felt initially, relates, there's got to be one person on the planet who relates to the way I'm thinking about something, then it's worth it that they know they're not alone either. And then I got a Twitter account and I started tweeting these things out into the universe, like zero followers, all this stuff. And just trusting that, I wasn't trying to create a business. I wasn't trying to get a book deal. I wasn't trying to have a a big presence in the community. None of that was even on my mind. This was about how do I express this and also have other people know they're not alone, like somewhere on this planet Earth. But that's what it turned into, though. Millions of views. At what point did you feel 
Oh, so the blog led into that. You're saying the blog was like just letting your experience out. Yes, I would discuss, and that blog is still up, by the way, I would discuss on a weekly basis. And sometimes it was getting really prolific. Sometimes I was blogging several times a day, but I would go to DBT class and then I would internalize it and apply it in some way. And then I would share my experience on the blog, like in real life applications, sometimes in bizarre situations that no one could relate to because I had my own stuff going on. But a lot of times it was relatable. And people started asking me, started emailing me, started commenting, started reaching out. Can you teach me this? Or how do you use this skill? How do you, I go, you know what? I need to figure out a way to deliver this. to all these people that are asking who can't get it locally, who don't, because DBT, especially 10 years ago, I actually, it was 2013 after I went into recovery that I was like, okay, I need to figure this out. And I found a DBT path, which is at emotionallysensitive.com. And this, I feel that while it's helping so many people around the world, whether it's people who prefer an online format, people who live in rural areas or in countries where this, they don't even, DBT is not even discussed, let alone available, whether it's celebrities that want to protect their privacy or people that have a public figure presence. We allow people to use aliases and stuff in those circumstances so they can feel completely comfortable from all walks of life, from all over the planet. <laughs> I never imagined that this is what it would lead to, but this is what it is now. And we have actually a team of 10 now that includes myself, Catherine Holt, who is getting ready to finish up her PhD in depth psychology, is also trained in DBT from Columbia University, who co-facilitates the classes. We have Serena Lucchese, who is a somatics therapist who does like yoga work and body stuff, who I actually had the privilege to work with in person in the San Francisco Bay area. As part of my recovery process, I now have her come to our classes once a month and give this gift to our students. And so that's something we're currently offering that's not on the website because it's like a bonus thing. And one of the things you normally find out about after you sign up, but that's one of the things going on behind the scenes. And we have Kim, our virtual office manager. We have Sherrod, who helps with homework responses. We have Charlie and Ari, who are peer support. We have a weekend thread where people share from all over the world that are attending the class. And also our graduates can participate and talk about what they're doing for self-care and coping and get tips and get support. And we have Chris, who's just joining us. Everybody basically who, other than the clinical staff, have been through the program themselves have actually done the work, know the community. We have paid staff. We have two people who are volunteers because they choose that. They don't want to be paid for you know their own personal reasons that they have that are very part-time. We have also Amanda Smith, who is from hopefrombpd.com. And she is a highly trained DBT therapist who trained at Dr. Linehan's Institute. She meets with our team once a month so that we can process the things. Even though we're in a psychoeducational course, stuff comes up and we have an opportunity to talk about that and set goals and talk about situations that were difficult that come up that we witnessed or heard about. And then we have charity. We have our graphic designer. We have there a lot. It was just me. For so so I want to go back to that. When you started just you, you were the blog and then people were asking you, what did you offer them in the beginning? What did you say you're going to give them? Because they never did group DBT or personal, right? Whoever's coming to you hasn't experienced it yet, or they did and they need extra. What was the beginning? 
It was a mix. And I was working with a therapist at that time as well. I've always had a therapist co-facilitating and then I've held the role as a peer educator and co-teacher and have gone on to get uh, DBT training myself as well as life coaching training. I've evolved in my role, but I've always had a therapist and the way it was presented was initially was, hey, this is a place to get together and talk about the common things that are coming up for us. We can't really get in depth into it, the traumas and things like that, but we can talk about things and teach you some coping skills. And I remember when we first started, we're charging like $5 a month. (laughs) And we had just like a dozen people showing up and the teacher that I was teaching with at the time, and I would sometimes log into other devices just to make the group look a little bigger because we've now it's in a totally different place. It's just, it's grown exponentially and to the point where we need all these team members to, to help to keep the community running. And I never imagined that this is what it would look like or what I would be doing, that this would be my full-time work, my passion, what feels like my life mission, and that I'd be able to help support people from around the globe not just in my class, but also on my team to give people jobs. Like the person who couldn't keep a job herself has a staff, you know what I mean? It's it's unbelievable. And I'm so proud. Talk about a life worth living. You're like the poster child of Marsha Linehan, a a life worth living big time. And every moment you're changing a life where you're helping every moment because it's online classes, it's courses. And it's just, it's tools for people that are, that feel either that they need an extra boost or they've never even experienced it. And now they can experience it from their comfort of their home. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And I'm humbled and so touched all the time by messages I receive from people thanking us for this program, that telling us how their life has changed, telling us about a monumental example of something they went through last night that if they had gone through it six months before and hadn't had this course would have their life would have felt like it was falling apart but here's what they did it was a success and everything's okay and there's that and it really is just amazing to be in this time right now with the ability to reach people around the world and to have people so engaged and finding us and choosing to enroll and choosing to do the work and be a part of this it's not easy It is not easy work and we do our best to support people and also refer them out and help them get connected with services if they need something beyond what we can provide. And that comes up when they're in the class. But yeah, it's just (laughs) amazing. Amazing. Debbie, would you now as somebody that facilitates so many and very comfortable with who you are and your diagnosis and your recovery and your journey, do you tell people to still not say that they, if they had a diagnosis with borderline, if they go to the hospital, do you also tell them not to say that they're borderline? I share my story. I usually mentioned what I told you in the first week of class during our orientation, because Catherine and I both give an overview of the program, but we also share a little bit about what brought us to this work. I do talk about that. When it comes up for an individual student, what I typically recommend is We work on something called tapping into your wise mind, which is a concept in DBT that involves acknowledging and honoring both your logical, rational mind and what it's needing in that moment and your emotional mind and what you're needing from that space. And it's not, there's no quick yes or no answer. There really is this process of sitting down and saying, is, does this person need to know 
what is my hope if I share this that will happen? And we go through a process of using some of the skills to determine if this is a situation where we want to reveal that and not holding back because of shame, but out of self-protection and out of sometimes self-respect and dignity too. Because if this is a person who is not really a safe person who has maybe been unkind in the past or not sympathetic or understanding or educated on mental health issues, this could be a situation that could be really harmful. We look and we, we evaluate, we actually look and then for some students we'll come up with a script called a dear man, which is a, a DBT skill in interpersonal effectiveness, where you map out what you're going to say to ask someone for something or to set a limit or a boundary with someone. And we look at how can we go through this to, and actually go step-by-step step, and then the student will get feedback and we'll go back and forth. And then they choose for themselves. We're really trying to emphasize that this is this, we don't want this to be an impulsive decision, whether it's you've just started dating somebody, even whether some people will disagree with this about being completely upfront in the first therapy appointment. I have not been in, since I've been in recovery, I've had two different therapists since I moved to the Sacramento area from the Bay Area. And in each of those situations, I got to know that therapist for several sessions and got them, allowed them to see that I'm an articulate, intelligent, kind compassionate person who's high functioning and all of this stuff before I said that just before I shared that this was part of my story, because I wanted to establish that relationship. Yeah, the trust, the relationship and this reciprocity of just seeing me human to human and not having any preconceived notions, because I think sometimes and this is a choice and some people may feel very differently. And I honor that too, because you have to go with what feels right for you. But when I'm working with people and Catherine and I are working with people in that context, when this question comes up, we really want to put back the power on them to discover and listen to their own discernment. And that's a process. It's not like a, okay, should I tell this guy that I'm dating that I have BPD? Okay, yes. All right. And then you go, or whatever the circumstance might be. That's how I approach it. Yeah. I like that answer. And you know what? It gives me, sometimes I feel like we have to shout out loud so many things of our insecurities, but it's the way you put it, not everybody needs to know everything, even though you accepted it. Yes. Not everyone needs to know everything, even though you accepted it. And that's okay. <laughs> One of the, this is exactly right. One of the things we talk about in my class, because it impacts so many people with BPD, you know, it impacts humans in general, but for people that have BPD, a lot of the people that come to my course can relate to having over disclosure, like feeling like you have to just like divulge your whole life story to make sure someone's going to accept you. And you have to put like all of your skeletons and family past and like right now and the way I describe that is you do not have to give a piece of your precious story to everyone because not everyone deserves it. Not everyone can hold it. Not everyone's going to value and respect it. We have a whole class about boundaries and about that topic, about what does it mean about me if I don't want to share? It doesn't have to mean that I'm ashamed that I have BPD traits and that I'm in recovery or that I'm currently diagnosed with borderline and have personality disorder and have nine criteria. It doesn't mean I'm ashamed. It means this is a way I'm taking care of myself and I am protecting myself. That is so important for anything in life. Now, like in the world is very exposing, right? We have to expose, but some, sometimes we don't have to expose and it could be the smallest of things. It's my story and I get to share it with the people that I want to share with. And it doesn't have to come from a place of shame, not sharing with others. It's my precious story. You said it so nicely. It's my precious story and I get to choose who it will dwell with and who doesn't deserve my a part of me. 
And it's so healing. And I keep on saying, it's just like freedom to know that I don't have to all the time. And it's not because I'm insecure or shame. It's because it's my choice. Yes. That is part of our power. That is actually where we get to choose and decide who gets to know and who doesn't as part of our power, not our weakness or our shame. Yeah. I have three more questions and I'm going to do this fast. Okay. <laughs> three more questions. I'm sorry. It's going longer than I expected. No, I'm having a great time. I had a feeling that, and, and I didn't even touch the iceberg. So we might have to have you back again. Okay. First of all, did you ever meet Marshall Linehan? No, I was invited to a an event that she was doing in New York City and I'm in California and I had an opportunity and I did not go and I hope that I still get to at least speak to her one day because her whole thing where she said she went through hell and then went back into hell to rescue people is how I feel about what I'm doing now. And I would love to be able to tell her that. <laughs> Do you ever communicate with her like through emails or anything like that or her staff? Do they know about you? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure they do because Dr. Perry Hoffman, may she rest in peace, she was the founder and head of the National Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder, NEBPD. And she was friends with Dr. Linehan and she was actually the one that extended the invitation to me. So I, I suspect there's been a conversation. I haven't had dialogue with them. I've had dialogue with her publisher because we use her materials in our course, of course. So that's the foundation of everything. But no, and I would love that. Yeah. So on, on my goals is to meet her one day and just to say to her how much people that come my way, just from my stories that I hear from people share a lot of stories, how much she impacted the world and she changed so much in the world. And she's like a hero in my eyes. She's a hero. She's really a hero. One of those really on the top 10 list of people that I want to meet. And what would you say to her when you saw her? If you had 30 seconds to say something to her, what would it be? No pressure, Martin. You don't have to, by the way, you don't have to share it with us. No, I I would love to share it. It's just, okay, let's say like all of a sudden you said Marshall Linehan's coming on this program and you have 30 seconds to tell her like right now. What would be like the first thing that you want to share, like that you feel from the depth of your heart that you want to say to her? I would say, thank you, Dr. Linehan, for your courage, for your willingness, for your determination. Thank you for listening to that small voice inside when you were hospitalized and told that you weren't going anywhere and that there wasn't any help or any cure. Thank you for listening to that inner voice that knew that you wanted to get out of hell so that you could go back and rescue others. Thank you for pursuing your education. Thank you for the countless lives you have saved, the countless relationships you have saved. Thank you for everything that you are and for all of the ripple effects that you've had and you continue to have, and you will continue to have on so many lives, including mine. I'm so grateful. Beautiful. I have the chills and tears, literally. So beautiful, Debbie. So beautiful. I want to finalize with a question that I ask everyone, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit towards you.
Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others, essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. I usually ask people the last question, what does hope look like to you? I want to say, what does hope for borderline personality disorder look like to you? Hope for borderline personality disorder looks like to me, a community, a world that is waking up to what it really means to have this disorder and that is growing in empathy, that is growing in understanding and compassion, that is growing in its capacity to serve some of the most emotionally wounded people on the planet who, if given a chance, can become healers, can become teachers, can become people who are of service on this planet that have far-reaching effects way beyond their own personal trauma and distress. These are creative, imaginative, strong, intelligent, capable people who just need a chance. And I believe that with programs like the one I've developed and and other programs around the world that offer this type of community and presence for people, healing will happen. And it'll have like big effects, not just on them, but on their family members, their friends, their community, their workplace in the world at large. That's what hope looks like for me for BPD. Wow. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm pumped. Wow. There's hope. There's hope. And the stigma and the shame and everything will slowly get smaller and the desire to heal. And the more people hear about stories like you, you are a walking hope. You are a story of a walking living, breathing hope of someone that came from the depths of wanting to just give up and just disappearing to creating the most beautiful gift to the world for those that are, were, are walking where you were. And the more, and and your students are probably also going to create this ripple effect. And you said a ripple effect a few times in the conversation, and that's what it is. Like you heal, you trust, you give, And then they give forward. And this is how we break a cycle of debilitating people that really have so much potential. And all it it took Marsha to believe that there's a change, there's a possibility, that there's hope and to think about a way and a lot of trust in humanity and in our mind that we can really implement change. Yes. And and I want to also speak to those who feel like what do I do right now, though, while there is stigma as this dream and this is all unfolding, this vision. And I just want to encourage you to seek community, 
seek their Facebook groups or different, you have to be cautious and, and be careful, but at the same time, seek places where you can connect with other people and see that you're not alone, get support and get feedback and connect with others. And I think that's a really big part of it is that there are thousands of people, many people on this planet that are going through the same thing that you're going through right now, that have the same fears and worries, that have the same concerns and knowing you're not alone and tapping into that while things are evolving can be so helpful. Yeah. Does DBT Path have community? Is that one of the services that you have for your students that they can interact with each other? Yes. I One of the most important components about DBT, I believe, is that it's done in community. DBT skills groups are done in a group and you hear other people's stories and you may not always relate to what they're going through, but there's this development of empathy that happens in that process. And there's just also this development of interpersonal skills and being able to hold space and being able to manage your own triggers when something comes up that someone else brings up. It is structured, like we have a private encrypted forum. It's not on Facebook, it's private in that way. And so you don't need a social media account or have it connected to your social media in any way. And there's a homework thread each week, and that's focused on the discussion of the use and application of the skills. And students are allowed to engage with each other. They receive an official response from a team member and feedback on a weekly basis on the homework thread. But there is this opportunity for relation, for support, for understanding. And people are often surprised that's something that, that they bring up is relatable. And when they take that risk, when they put that trigger warning at the top and talk about something and say, I know this will probably sound crazy. And then they get like 15 responses of, uh, no, I just did that last night. You know what I mean? And we have other threads as well, including the one I mentioned earlier, which is a, a weekend thread that happens every Friday through Sunday, where students can share what skills they're working on, what their self-care plans are for the weekend. And often that's where people catch up to, oh, what happened with your son at his appointment? Or this, there's that piece of feeling like you're really connected and, and because you are. And then before class, before our live class, we have an old school type of chat room that opens up for a half an hour. People connect before the lesson starts and catch up as well in that way. And they hang out there and they connect. And I think a big part of it is feeling a belonging when so often people struggle with belonging when it comes to BPD, because it's hard to accept and it's a hard to get the world to accept. So when you're in a place where you feel so safe and secure, you suddenly feel a belonging and that's healing. That's huge. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we hear from people that come through our virtual doors is that they finally found a space where they're not being judged, where they're not being treated like they're a monster, where it's not, there's acceptance and non-judgment and kindness and even empathy and compassion from both team members and their peers. This is a space that's a lot different than other spaces they've experienced in their lives. And that makes a difference. And it, it is about belonging, realizing you have a place. I say, this is your tribe now. When people say stuff like that, you found your tribe. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I'm going to go technical now. How does it work in your courses? Does it have to have an opening a specific time or can anybody come in and download a course? Is it live always? Tell me a little bit about that if people are going to be wondering if they can join. Sure. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we open every three months to invite new students to enroll. Our next offering starts on February 1st, which is Distress Tolerance. And that'll be followed by emotion regulation and interpersonal effectiveness. 
I'll mention that our enrollment opens on January 22nd, just in case this is possibly aired before then, and that we open up to early enrollment if people get on our email list for registration reminders at emotionallysensitive.com. And it's a nine-month program. We hold a live class each week that is lecture-style and so it's interactive in the sense that you can enter questions into a Q&A and some of those questions will be answered during the class. And there's a live agenda at the beginning. And then the class is recorded and put into their student portal and they're able to access it. There are a number of students who aren't able to attend live, whether it's because of work or time zone or what have you, they do have access to review the recording. And then we have the private forum that I told you about where the interaction really takes place. And then we have some of these live offerings that are held over Zoom throughout the month. Like I mentioned one of them that we currently have, subject to change, of course, but we currently have with Serena and we have some other offerings as well that we let some goodies that we let you know about when you get in. And yeah, when you're in class, you do not have to turn on your cam. I used to be a person that liked to be in front of the video all the time, but I've realized that in some ways I'm much more introverted and I can be more authentic and genuine when if I pre-record video or if I just go audio. I wanted to offer that to students as well. We don't, for the outside workshops that we do outside of the weekly class, oftentimes there's this option to turn on your cam because some people really do want that to relate and see other people and connect. But in class, the focus is on, there's a presentation up on the board and sometimes or up on the board. <laughs> I sound so old, like the chalkboard. <laughs> there's a, a presentation up on the screen and sometimes some video components and it's Catherine and I teaching. And we take some questions at the end of class at the very uh, end. And then most of the questions after that are taken throughout the week that are posted in their study hall area. So it's the same group every, like the nine months is the same group. There's no new students coming in the middle. We actually do, the modules are three months long. Every three months, we do allow new students to join us because we take a break of one week between each module and then onboard new students and bring them in for orientation and do all of that. So you can't, we do allow people to come in every three months. Deer in headlights again. <laughs> so let me try, maybe you'll, I'll come up to the next question. What happens after nine months? Do people repeat it? Is there a, a second program they go through? What happens then? After nine months of completing the program and participating and all of that, you graduate. You become what we call a senior student. You have this designation with your presence in the community. If you choose to interact with students that are coming in, they know that you've been through the program and you've had that experience. Many students will choose to repeat. We do encourage that because I know for myself personally uh, that it often it, you need more than one round and people will choose to re-enroll and repeat often and some people will not. Either way, they become, they end up in our wise mind, if they want to, they end up in our wise mind club and they are invited, our senior students, our graduates, whether they continue to enroll and stay in the program or not, once they complete and actively have participated in that nine, nine months of study, they are invited to workshops and different activities as well during the month to stay in community, to stay connected, to stay practicing. And it's so nice to continue to, we don't just lose track. We still get to see what's going on in people's lives and how they're doing. And sometimes those connections lead to what oh, I really need to get back in class, or I really need to do this or that, or can you support me around this question? Or And the I don't, I never wanted it to be something where 
you're just completely cut off like after the time. And this is something that we develop to keep the community. And actually we're thinking of developing something I'm excited about. I'm really trying not to say what it's called or anything, but it's for our senior students and grads to take them beyond just doing DBT skills and continuing to build their lives and their lives worth living and beyond just surviving and practicing skills. We're actually working on something right now for that segment of our pop, our community. <laughs> That's exciting because I was just talking to a client of mine this morning and I was saying they're surviving. And then once you're survived and you're not, no longer feeling like you're drowning, that's when things start evolving and you live and you thrive. And that's where the work is really done. But it's a different kind of work that is more exciting because you don't just get to live, you get to thrive. Yes. It's things you couldn't even imagine considering. Oh, do I want to go back to school? Do I want to? Exactly. Right. Your life is stable and you're at that next level of, okay, what are my dreams and how do I start pursuing them? Exactly. It's not only surviving, it's really thriving. And how do we get there? And, and when we have the stability in our mind, we can actually dream big, act big, conquer big, and it's really the next level. And there's in recovery, there's two levels or three levels, but you first have to get out of the survival. And then when you're like, okay, I no longer feel like I'm drowning. Now I can really do something exciting. Yes. It makes me think of like psychology 101 Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like when you're worried about where you're going to find shelter and eat, you're not thinking about how do I, you may be, but you don't have the resources to think, how can I like start a business right now? Or how like the self, what is it called at the very tip of that? When you, you get to the point where it's beyond surviving and you're just out there like exploring spirituality and exploring like the next level, you know what I'm talking about. Thriving. I call it thriving. There's surviving and there's thriving and thriving not even people that don't feel like they have mental illness, not every ordinary person thrive. It's a choice to go to the next level of thriving and creating really something exciting and feeling like you're vibrating on a higher level. That's thriving. And that's a gift that we choose to enter. We really choose to enter it because it's hard work and, but it pays off. It really pays off. Absolutely. <laughs> Debbie, thank you so much. We're going to have a link in the show notes to Debbie's platform. And I'm sure there's a contact us with all the questions that you want to ask if it's applicable to you. So ask away. And uh, I am so grateful that you gave me your time, your wisdom, your story. You chose to share your story with me. And I'm very grateful for that. And I'm grateful that you went through the recovery to show others that there's a possibility and you're going to walk them through it if they choose to. And I'm looking forward to the world without the stigma and to get more practitioners, psychiatrists to have hope in those that are going through borderline personality disorder to say that there is hope, there is change, and you can create incredible futures and lives and you matter. So thank you, Debbie. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I was holding this. That's why part of the reason why it took so long is I was like, do I do this? Do I share my story here? And I'm so glad I did. Thank you. Guys, thank you for listening. If you know anyone that can benefit from this, share it with them. You might save a life and you may create a human that will thrive. Bye till next time. 
Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.